Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. On this New Year's Eve... We're starting a new series in the book of Thessalonians. We're going to be in Thessalonians through the end of uh, January and into the first Sunday in February. Um, And then uh, starting on the second Sunday in February for Lent, we're going to do a series in the Psalms leading up to Easter. And after Easter, we're going to start Exodus and be in Exodus until the fall. Um, So that's where we're going in terms of the scripture. I wanted to start in Thessalonians. Um, partly for a very practical reason and partly for a very spiritual reason. And I won't tell you which one came first. Um, The very practical reason is we needed like five weeks of sermons before jumping into another series. And so Thessalonians is great for that. It's just a little book and we could just sit in it for a while. Um, The very spiritual reason uh, is because Thessalonians is a really amazing little letter. It is written to a group of Christians who were very, very new to their faith and who were very, very new to their faith in a, in a city that was extremely hostile to their faith. Um, the Thessalonian church was born under persecution. It was born under fire. Um, and it's also one of the letters of the New Testament, where we can read the whole background of what was going on in the book of Acts. Um, And so when you read Thessalonians, you can go and get a really full picture of everything that was happening in this little church in this city uh, just by reading a couple chapters of Acts and then jumping into the book or the letter to the Thessalonians. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start today in Acts, and we're going to read the background of what was happening in the city of Thessalonica. And then we're going to jump next week into the letter. We're going to cover the first three chapters in one day because the first three chapters is just like, God's amazing. You guys are awesome. This has been really hard. I'm really proud of you. Keep doing it. Like that's, there you go. That's next week's sermon. It's all done. Um, But this week we're going to look at the the foundation, the beginning of the uh, church in Thessalonica, this city uh, in modern-day Turkey, in Macedonia, um, and and get into that. But first, let's let's pray. Um, I need I need to center my mind, and I imagine most of us need to center our hearts on Jesus before we get into this. Lord, thank you so much for this family. Thank you so much for this body. Thank you for these people who love well, who long to follow you, who long to know you better. And and God, I pray that you would just continue to deepen our hunger for Jesus, our hunger for your word, our hunger for your Holy Spirit, our hunger for holiness um, as we spend time together and as we gather together. Lord, would you deepen our desire to be together? We know we need each other. But would you deepen that desire to be together, that I would long to be with these people as much as I long to be with my kids and my wife and my family? Because we need your church. We need your body. Lord, would you bless this word? 
Holy Spirit, speak through it. Speak through the words that I'm speaking, but Lord, speak to the hearts of everyone in this room. God, let your word and the Holy Spirit do the work this morning so that we are vessels. And Lord, transform us through that word. Make us more like Jesus through what we hear and read today. Make us more like Jesus through our interactions with one another today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, and then we're going to jump in. Um, After they, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. After Paul, Silas, and Timothy passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous And they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. So, I wonder if to many of us, the good news of Jesus really is like good news, like really good news, beyond just our own salvation. Like, what does it mean that the good news of Jesus is good news. And who is it good news for? I, uh, I get a, um, one of the few, few, few perks of being a type 1 diabetic person is that I get a free lifetime National Parks Pass. Right? Because, hey, right? Like, pretty amazing. Um, we don't have to buy an annual pass because uh, I, because I have a, a disability. Um, I can get a letter from my doctor and go pick up a National Parks Pass uh, for my whole life because I have uh, diabetes. It's one of the very few perks. We don't, we don't get too many like disability perks, but there you go. That's one of them. Now, that's good news for me and my family. That's really good news for us. And generally, when I share that news, people smile and they say, well, that's really great for you. I'm so glad. Like, that's really cool. I'm glad you guys can go to national parks and not have to pay for your car entry or whatever, right? 
It's, it's really good news. We enjoy that good news. And I think sometimes that's how we treat the good news of Jesus. Like, that's good news for my family, and you'll be happy for me, and it's not bad news for you, but it doesn't really impact your life, right? And in a world of relativistic truth, like, that's what good news is. Oh, that's really good for you. You, know, you follow Jesus, it's really good for you. That's great. I'm glad you have that. And the really, you know, the, um, the really nice uh, uh, condescending folks will say, that's so good. I'm glad you have that comfort. I'm glad you have that peace. Like, I'm glad that helps you in your time of need, right? But when we believe the gospel of Jesus, when we believe the good news of Jesus, we believe or we should believe that it is good news for all people for all time forever, This isn't good news just for you and me. This isn't just some therapeutic thing that we we buy into to make ourselves feel better or to help us deal with the troubles of life or the struggles of life. When we follow Jesus and we receive the good news and we pledge allegiance to Jesus the King as Paul was preaching, we think that's good news for the world, for everybody throughout time. It's not just good for me. But the way that we talk about the good news sometimes makes it feel like we don't really believe that. And specifically the way we hold back from talking about the good news of Jesus from certain people. Would it be good news for them? If I told them the gospel, if I shared the good news of Jesus, would it really be good news? Would they receive it as good news? Is this good news for them right now? I'm convinced that when we're convinced that the good news of Jesus truly is good news for all people in all time, that is, good news for absolutely everybody I interact with on a daily basis, that it would be really hard to not talk about Jesus. If we really honestly, to our core, believe that the good news of Jesus being king over the whole world is good news for a fallen, broken world, and that it is good news for everybody regardless of their circumstances or situation, if we really believe that down to our core, it would be hard not to talk about Jesus. And I'm not talking about beating people over the head with a Bible or shouting about how people are going to hail without Jesus and so you got to give your laugh to him. I'm talking about talking about a person who is the king of the universe, who is better than anybody you've ever met, who is love embodied on a regular basis because you love him and you believe that he is good news for everybody you meet. I think it would be hard to keep that shut up in our bones if we really believed the good news of Jesus, if we really believed he was raised from the dead and now rules and reigns as king over all, if we really believed that all the brokenness of the world will one day be healed by a returning King Jesus, if we really believed that the only true answer to all of our questions of security and identity were found in being owned and loved by God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, it would be hard not to talk about that in a winsome, loving way that wasn't forcing people things down people's throat, but was just saying, look, I, I know this person who is incredible, and you, I really, I think you should know him too. It would lead to a boldness that many of us just don't live in if we believed that the good news of Jesus really was good news for everybody everywhere. And that's what's happening here. Paul and Silas, his buddy, have been traveling around talking about the good news of Jesus. And when they go to a town, the very first thing they do is walk into the Jewish synagogue. 
And their declaration to these Jewish people gathered in the synagogue all the time is, hey, Messiah has come. That is, the king of Israel has come. And you can imagine, like, if you're a good Jewish person living in the Roman Empire and you're in a synagogue out in some, like, town way far away from Jerusalem and some Jewish guy, some rabbi comes to you and says, hey, Messiah has come, you're going to be puzzled by that. Because you're like, I didn't hear about an uprising. I didn't hear that Israel is free. I didn't hear that Jerusalem is our capital now. I didn't hear there's a new king. So what are you talking about? And then the guy who's telling you the Messiah has come goes on to tell you, but he's not like the Messiah we were imagining. He didn't come and like free Israel. He didn't come and drive out the Romans. He didn't come and build up an army and set himself up as king. This Messiah came and was crucified. (laughs) And then again, as a good Jewish person, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just told me two contradictory things. You told me Messiah came and that he's dead. That doesn't work. Like those that you can't square that circle, right? And then Paul goes on to say Messiah came. He is Messiah. He died. And the way that we know he was Messiah is that on the third day he rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven. And now the kingdom of God is not what you're imagining. It's not some geographically bounded place with a king you can see and a government. Instead, the kingdom of God has been opened up to all people everywhere and anybody can come join it without being circumcised or going through the rites of becoming a Jewish person. Anybody can come And follow this Messiah and be part of his kingdom because he reigns from heaven. He is the true king. Caesar's not your king. So if you're suffering under Caesar, here's the good news. Jesus is your king and Caesar has no power over him. Which is why we read here that when Paul and Silas and Timothy go and preach this, a whole bunch of Greeks come and follow Jesus. Especially Greek women. Did you notice twice in there it says... Greek women came and believed. I mean, these are the people who are like, I'm not doing well under Caesar, not even necessarily doing well under my husband. And they come here, this freeing message that Jesus is the real king and he's come to bring them freedom and adoption into God's family. And they're like, sign me up. That is good news. It is good news that neither Caesar nor my abusive husband have the ultimate power over me. There's another king who reigns and who will make all things right. And so everywhere they go, they're preaching this. So here's what happens. Paul and Silas were traveling around. They end up in a town, and they meet this guy named Timothy, this young dude named Timothy. Timothy was a weird guy. He was from a weird family. His dad was a Roman citizen. His dad was a a Greek guy. Um, And his mom was Jewish. And his grandma was Jewish. And his mom and grandma lived with them. And they taught Timothy the scriptures. And somewhere along the way, Timothy's mom and grandma became followers of Jesus. We don't know how. We don't know where they heard the gospel. But we know that they did. And they became followers of Jesus. And they taught Timothy not only the scriptures, but that Jesus was Messiah and the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so Timothy grows up a Christian with a Greek pagan dad. And Paul and Silas meet Timothy and they're like, this kid's got it. Like this kid's got some stuff. Like he knows his stuff. And so they invite Timothy to come as their apprentice as they travel around and preach the good news. 
So they pick up Timothy, and they're about to head to Bithynia. And as they're on their way to Bithynia, they get a vision. Paul gets a vision from God. And in this vision from God, a guy from Macedonia, a Macedonian man, I don't know how they could tell it was a Macedonian guy. Maybe they had special clothes or a special hairdo. I don't know. But Paul, in this vision, sees this dude who he knows is Macedonian. And this dude is, is pleading with Paul, would you please come to Macedonia? We need you. And so Paul's like, okay. So he processes this with Silas and Timothy. And they say, okay, I guess God wants us to go to Macedonia. We're also told that the Holy Spirit, in fact, the scripture says the spirit of Jesus, wouldn't allow them to enter Bithynia. Like they were trying to go there. That's where they were going to go. And somehow God stopped them and said, nope, not there. And then gave them this vision and said, no, go to Macedonia instead. Well, the first city they come to as they're traveling through Macedonia, the first big city is Thessalonica. And so they do what they do. They walk into the synagogue in Thessalonica, and Paul starts preaching about how Jesus is Messiah. He has come. And people start to believe it. People start to follow Jesus. He's there for three weeks. Check this out. He's there for three weeks, three Saturdays, three Sabbaths. He is preaching in the synagogue. And enough people start to believe his message and follow That the rest of the Jewish leadership of Thessalonica is like, this guy's got to go. There's a problem. Like, too many people are following him. And we don't believe in this message of his Messiah. So they got to leave. And so these these faithful Jewish leaders go out to the marketplace and they grab a bunch of ruffians. Like, they grab a bunch of evil men, it says. But but people who just, like, want to do something. They want to make trouble. And so they go grab a bunch of guys, and they start, a, they start a riot. They get a mob together, and they start a riot to drive Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of Thessalonica. And so three weeks, Paul is in there, preaching the gospel, discipling people, teaching them what it means to follow Jesus as Messiah, teaching them what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom and a member of God's family. And that's all he's got is three weeks. And this mob comes after them, and specifically after this guy, Jason, who they know has been housing Paul and Silas and Timothy. So they come after Jason, and they arrest Paul. Jason gets some guys together. They put together a bail bond, and they go pay the bond, get Paul and Silas and Timothy out of prison, and then over cover of night, they send them on their way. You guys got to go. Like, this is only going to get worse. The violence is only going to get worse. You got to leave. And so they fly off to Berea. They get to Berea. They start preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And the Bereans are believing. They're starting to follow Jesus. The Bereans are studying the scripture. They're seeing what Paul is saying. They're like, yeah, that totally tracks. And they're, they're believing. Word gets back to the mob in Thessalonica that Bereans are believing in Jesus. And the mob isn't content to have them out of Thessalonica. The mob's now got to go to Berea. And so this mob of people, like, runs down to Berea to run Paul out of Berea. They're like, it's not good enough that he's not in Thessalonica. He's got to be out of Macedonia completely. Like, we need him out of our region. Just go. And so the mob comes down, and it's decided that because Paul is the most visible, because Paul's the one been doing the teaching, because Paul is kind of the face of this movement, Paul's going to leave and go to Athens. But Silas and Timothy will stay behind and nurture this Berean church. And so that's what happens. So Paul goes off to Athens leaving Paul and Silas, or Timothy and Silas behind. Timothy and Silas 
go back to the church in Thessalonica. We don't read about that right here, but in the letter, we we learn that Timothy goes back to the church in Thessalonica. So at this point, you got Timothy in Thessalonica, Silas in Berea, Paul down in Athens. And that's kind of where we end here. They're all separated. And they're all nurturing these churches. Paul's in Athens preaching at the Areopagus. It's the very famous thing with the, uh, the, uh, the altar to the unknown God and stuff like that. Paul goes down to Athens and he creates a riot down there because Paul's really good at, at getting people stirred up and causing riots, I guess. So he's down in Athens doing his thing. Then Paul's got to go to Corinth. So Paul stirs up trouble in Athens, kind of helps to get a, start, a church started going. It must not have been too much of one because we don't really have mention of the Athens church after that. But Paul heads out to Corinth. And then Paul's in Corinth preaching the gospel, building up a church there. And this is all happening over the course of weeks, probably months. This doesn't happen like overnight. It takes a long time. So that's kind of the timeline. That's what's happening as these guys are heading around preaching the gospel in places. And the whole time Paul is in Corinth, he's wondering what happened to that church in Thessalonica. What happened to these people? Like, They were following Jesus. They were really coming to follow. They loved Jesus. They loved each other. They were building this community. But he knows the pressure they're under. He knows how hard it is to follow Jesus in Thessalonica now. So you can imagine Paul's in Corinth doing his thing, but the whole time he's agonizing over what's happening in Thessalonica. Are they still following Jesus? Weeks, maybe months later. What's going on in Thessalonica? And that's where we leave Paul in Corinth, wondering about the church in Thessalonica. And that's where we'll pick up as we start the book of Thessalonians. As we start this letter, we'll learn that Silas and Timothy do come to Paul in Corinth, and they give this beautiful report of what's happening in Thessalonica, that because of the pressure, because of the persecution, the church is growing, and the people are faithful, and they're following Jesus, And Paul will be overjoyed, so much so that the first, like, half of the book, maybe two-thirds of the letter, is just Paul saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are faithful, and God is good. And so we'll we'll pick up there. But I want to park here in this story of how the church got started and, and what this good news means. I asked at the beginning, like, Is the good news really good news? Is the gospel of Jesus really good news for everybody in all times? And that if we really did believe that, then it would be hard to keep that message shut up within us. It would be really difficult to hold on to it and just make it a personal thing and just make it about me and Jesus or my faith. And we see here Paul and Silas and now Timothy get so excited, they're so convicted by the truth of this message of Messiah that they have to go and share it. They have no choice but to go and to be bold in the face of circumstances that would shut most of us down. I mean, really, if a mob of people were coming after you to run you out of Denver because you were preaching about Jesus, would you keep it up? Or would you go home and be like, okay, it's me and you, Jesus. We're good. Like, I'll need all these other people, like me and you. Here's the truth. The whole idea that we can be good Christians on our own, just me and God, only works in a privileged society where there's no pressure on us. 
it only works in a place where we're not dealing with persecution, where we're not under pressure to give up our faith, where, this, where the culture and the, the broader society, maybe they're not friendly, but they're definitely not bringing the pressure down for you to recant your faith and to walk away from it. Me and Jesus only works here. It only works in privileged places. Those Thessalonian Christians, they needed each other. They had to have each other. They had to be together. They had to support each other or else they all would have given up. They needed the encouragement of the family, the encouragement of the community. And so they came together to be encouraged in their faith, to be encouraged in following Jesus, to learn together how to follow Jesus. And it made them bold to proclaim the good news of Jesus because they realized this is good news for me and this is good news for all the people who are persecuting me. This isn't just good news for our community. We're not just saved in this little ark called the church to go to heaven and let the rest of the world burn. This is good news for everybody, including the people who don't like me, including the people who hate my faith, including the people who are bringing mobs to run Paul out of the city. This is good news. Jesus is king, and no one has power and authority over him. He alone rules and reigns, and he alone will make all things right. And if that is true, then those people who are putting together a mob need him as their king as much as I do. And so in that persecuted town, in that place where the pressure was on to give up your faith, these people got together and they encouraged and nurtured each other and they stood up to the people who were coming after them and they proclaimed the good news of Jesus because they believed it was good news for everyone. They were bold. And that boldness was born out of a desire for even their enemies to know the good news of Christ, to follow him as king, to give their lives to him, to lay down the sin that led them to persecute the church and instead become followers of Jesus themselves. This is what's happening in Thessalonica. And this is why Paul could be there for only three weeks and yet months later hear of a church that was strong, that was united, that was full of brotherly love and proclaiming the good news to the hostile community around them. And this boldness, this boldness and this this hardcore belief in the resurrection of Jesus and the good news for everyone led all of them to be more dedicated to Jesus, more dedicated to the gospel. A lot of us think that that the kind of pressure these guys would under would lead us maybe to give up our faith or to quiet it down or to maybe make it just personal and internal. And a lot of us think that persecution might dilute the church or that pressure from the outside might dilute the church. But in this case, it led them to be more dedicated to Jesus and to one another and to build one another up, to continue to build up. It led to boldness and dedication. And I think as we step into 2024... Those are a couple of words that we can hold to. Boldness and dedication. 
If we believe the good news of Jesus with all the fiber of our being, and we believe it's not just for me and for you individually, but it's for them, it's for the community, it's for our neighbors and for our world, then we will have no choice but to be bold and dedicated to the good news of Jesus. To speak about Jesus as though he is someone real to us. We will be bold and dedicated and and led to figure out what does this good news look like for the single mom who's having trouble making ends meet? What's the good news look like for the Venezuelan refugee who's at the school next to us? What does this good news look like for the rich guy who lives across the street and doesn't think he needs Jesus at all? What does the good news look like for all of the people around us? How does the good news impact their lives? How does it impact my life? This year is a year that I want to be bold with the good news of Jesus and dedicated, so dedicated to the good news of Christ that I'm not concerned about how people receive it as long as I know I'm sharing it winsomely and in love and truth. I want to be so dedicated to the good news of Jesus that I'm not worried, like, how are they going to react? What are they going to say? How is this going to impact our relationship? I just want to talk about Jesus. Years ago, I had a friend, Robbie. Robbie was one of the most dedicated Christians I've ever known. And Robbie would sit with you and talk about Jesus in a way that, frankly, made me uncomfortable. Now, I've been a Christian my entire life. I've been following Jesus my whole life. I've been working in churches and in ministry. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I've, and when I was in seminary, I met Robbie, Robbie had lived on the mission field. Robbie had come back and was trying to figure out the next step and the next phase of his life. And the way that he would talk about Jesus as though he was a real person at the table with us. It wasn't like we were talking about Jesus like he was out there. It was like he was there and a part of our conversation made me uncomfortable. And it made me uncomfortable in a way that made me ask, like, do I really believe this stuff? Do I really believe what I'm saying? If Jesus isn't that real to me, and the truth is, yes, I really did believe what I was saying. The truth is that, yes, I really did believe the good news of Jesus. But he believed in such a way, and and he was dedicated to Jesus in such a way that it, it motivated me. It motivated me to long for that kind of real relationship with him. The kind of relationship where I could talk about Jesus, as though he's a real person living in my house. It made me want to live in such a way that you can't really know who I am without knowing who Jesus is. Not about my faith, not about my theology, not about my job or my work or my calling, but about the Jesus who defines me. Sometimes it's easier to step back and talk about our faith. This is my faith. Because it gives us a little distance. It puts a little cushion there to make people more comfortable. But the moment you start talking about Jesus as though he's real to you, and the Holy Spirit as though he's someone who actually talks to you and lives in you, it makes people uncomfortable. Even seminarians. That's the kind of faith I want. That's the kind of relationship with my God that I want. And as we step into 2024, this is the kind of relationship that I want to cultivate. I came to this realization as we were driving home. I was listening to someone talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And I had sat under a preacher the week before who was just awful, like one of the worst 
preachers I've ever heard. And I don't say that lightly. Um, but this guy had gone off on every cultural issue that he thought was relevant and yelled at us for an hour, not talking about Jesus, but talking about salvation and how you need salvation and really just bringing this hellfire and brimstone, like not gospel, not good news, condemning message. And it had hurt and I was angry when I left there. And, and as I left, I was thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I was thinking about these markers of the Christian and how you get there. How do you get to the place where you're a person who exhibits love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? It's not by trying to build up any one of those things. It's by being the kind of person that those things flow from. And the only way you get to become the kind of person that the fruit of the Spirit flows from is by being close to Jesus. Letting the Holy Spirit transform you from the inside out. Don't pursue the fruit. Become the kind of tree that produces the fruit. And so as we step into 2024, and I'm I'm asking myself, is this good news truly good news for everybody I meet? Am I really boldly dedicated to the good news of Jesus for the sake of this community and for the sake of my neighbors and my family? As we step in and I'm wondering, how can Jesus become more real to me? How does the Holy Spirit become more real to me? How is my relationship with God forming me into the kind of tree that produces the fruit of the Spirit? I want to step into boldness and dedication. I want to step into the boldness of speaking about Jesus, of holding on to him closely, investing in that relationship and letting him become real to me in ways he never has been before. Of stepping into prayer and conversation with God in a way that I never have before. In a way that truly is a conversation with my Father and my Savior and the Spirit of God living within me. I want to step into this place where I'm not just not ashamed, but I am boldly declaring the good news of God in every place and relationship. Because I do believe it is good news for the whole world. And that's what Jesus himself said. In John 3, right before John 3.16, that that verse that so many of us know, Jesus said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all the world to him. And I believe that when the Son of Man, when Jesus is lifted up in my life, he will draw my community to him. All I got to do is lift him up. All I got to do is lift him up and put him on display. And it will draw people in. I told you about that preacher that was preaching hellfire and brimstone, trying to convince people that they needed salvation. Thursday, I got to officiate this funeral and talk about the good news of Jesus, talk about the good news of the resurrection. And there was such a market. It wasn't because of me. I want to say this out front. It wasn't because I'm amazing. It was because I chose to let the scripture speak and let the Holy Spirit do the work, that afterward there was such a marked difference between the response to that yelling preacher a week before and the simple message of a God who loves us so much that he died and rose again for us. This is the message that will draw people in. We don't have to do the work of convincing people. We don't have to do the work of trying to yell them into heaven. That's not this community anyway. All we have to do is lift Jesus up and he will draw people to himself. And as we gather as the church, nothing points as clearly to Jesus 
as what we do when we gather to this table. To the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Nothing points more clearly to the good news of Christ our King, who came and sacrificed himself for us and rose again as our King, than this meal, as we partake of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord.